Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Let's face it, leaders have been through a lot over the past three years, yet the storm of organisational change keeps coming and uncertainty is the new normal. Leadership is ultimately about people, yet many find themselves responsible for implementing change without ever being taught the foundations of how to actually lead people through it. My guest today, Leah Mether, has a new book, Steer Through the Storm. As a communication and soft skills specialist, Leah provides a practical step-by-step guide to help to lead your people through turbulent times. She draws upon 15 years of experience working with a variety of organisations and Leah outlines a new approach to communication and leadership that will help you deal with the feelings of your people improve performance and get better results. Leah is a speaker, trainer, facilitator and author known for her direct, enthusiastic and relatable style. With a background in leadership, corporate comms and journalism, Leah works with executives, leaders and teams across Australia to help them improve their communication and self-management. With her years of experience working with thousands of clients, Leah knows what it takes to communicate under pressure. Her clients represent a diverse range of industries, government agencies and businesses across Australia, including AGL, Optus, La Trobe Community Health Services and the Department of Energy, Environment and Climate Action. As a proud Gippslander based in regional Victoria, Leah is passionate about supporting communities through industry transition as well. So a warm welcome to Leah and the politics of everything. Hello. Hello, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Pleasure. So what did young Leah want to be as a kid? You've got a very similar kind of, I guess, skill set to myself, but did you always want to be in the land of comms or was there something else that you thought you might do when you were younger? Uh, I did. When I was younger, I wanted to be an author, but particularly a fiction uh, novelist back then uh, and a journalist. And look, it's not far from where I am today because I started my career as a newspaper journalist and now I am the author of two books, uh, not in the fiction space, although there's one of those in the 
a draft in a drawer somewhere that uh, I think most writers have. But, yeah, what little me wanted and what big me has are pretty much on par. Excellent. Once again, some similarities between both of our careers in that sense, because I always wanted to be a journo and I ended up doing that. So yeah, sometimes those small small kid dreams become big person dreams. And it's great that you followed a path which you're passionate about. So getting to the topic today, how have hard times shaped leaders of the past? And I'm thinking of things like, you know, if you look back in history around war times or sort of, you know, really, Mm. I guess, big moments in history, that's one thing. But now it seems like the turbulence and the volatility is, is, is probably more frequent but different. How would you explain the modern sense of hard times? rate of change and uncertainty, it just seems to be speeding up. As you sort of indicated in your question, hard times have always shaped leaders. And you know, it's under pressure that you you see that old cliche of it really is the making or breaking of people. You see some leaders under that pressure really rally and stand up and, you know, you look at some of those greats through history, your Winston Churchills, your Nelson Mandela's, and you just think, wow, under extreme pressure what these leaders were able to do. Uh, and the same today. I think hard times still shape us. They are the making of us. But The hard times are coming thick and fast, whether it's the, you know, the big stuff like a global pandemic that no one saw coming uh, through to other big things like climate change, industry transitions. But that pace and rate of change, whether it's technology, people issues, it's so full on and frequent now that I suppose what we're, what leaders are what they have thrust upon them, what's expected of them has probably changed. In a lot of ways, I've got to say, I think the expectation change is for the better. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's it's inevitable and everyone at some point is going to face that, um, whether you're a leader or not. So what are some of the best ways that we can lead ourselves and I guess others that might be in our team or in our community through those challenges and changes so that we're not sort of going into that fear flight, fright, reaction, uh, letting the emotions get the better of us. Is there a way in which we can do this? There's no one silver bullet answer because we're all different. We are all different, have different experiences, backgrounds. But I think to your point about fight, flight, freeze, I think one of the keys to helping get ourselves, and you're spot on there, you can't lead other people through hard times unless you're leading yourself first. It always has to start with you leading yourself so you can lead others. The key thing we need to understand is a bit of the basics of how humans work. And I think this is one of those pieces around changing expectations of leaders because in the past, you know, post-industrial revolution, we saw people as essentially machines. You know, you're in on a production line and you don't think you're just there to do a job. But we have grown as a, you know, as a human race. We've got more knowledge and understanding now. Humans are emotion-driven beings, whether we like it or not. So I occasionally hear leaders say, oh, I don't do feelings or emotions don't belong in the workplace. And my response to that is, well, that'd be great if the reality was we weren't emotion-driven beings, but we are. So I think it starts with understanding that you will go into fight, flight or freeze 
under hard times because that is the primitive part of your brain, the amygdala, having a very normal reaction to a perceived threat. It's what you do to what's the next step after your body goes into that that's important. And that's the work I do around actually if we want to lead ourselves through challenge and change and other people, it's not about suppressing emotion. It's actually about being able to process it quicker to be able to move through it more effectively. Interesting. I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. So accountability can sometimes be mistaken for micromanagement in the wrong environment, but how can we hold others to account while leading and having that, I guess you talked about not wanting touchy feelings for some leaders, but that sense of compassion Mm. for yourself and for others is obviously something that's very important. We all recognise that, but it can be hard to do. But that accountability piece, I think, is hard for some people because, you know, since the pandemic, we have all kind of become a bit more remote working. We're not necessarily in an office together with people. Mm. How can we actually make this work in modern times? Yeah, so I speak a lot about the, you know, we need to be able to balance Warmth and strength, empathy and accountability. And if you want people to still be able to perform during hard times or through change, we do really need both. People need to feel like you care about them so that then when you hold them to account, they're more likely to be on board with that and listen to that. And leaders who are sceptical to that, who say, oh, bad luck, they should just get on with it, my response to that is, well, you'll lose one of the most powerful things at your disposal, their discretionary effort, which is absolutely key. But in terms of how do we hold them accountable, success is in the setup. And I think a lot of leaders miss this. So one of my top pieces of advice when change or a hard time is coming is to actually have the conversation with your people about what the shared expectations for communication, behaviour and performance are. Because I think we make a lot of assumptions as leaders and we assume, oh, it's common sense, people will know how to react. But under that pressure and stress, people can do some pretty out there things. And then you're, as a leader, trying to chase up, going, oh, hang on, no, that's not how you behave, that's not what we do. Now, this is work I was literally doing yesterday. I was in working in the power industry yesterday with a contractor and a big power company who are about to go into a major outage. Now, outages are notoriously stressful. People are working under pressure, very high hours. They've got tight deadlines to meet and we're talking about powering the state of Victoria here so you know you want to make sure things are going really well yeah the the stakes are pretty high (laughs) yeah the stakes are pretty high and what were this organized or these two organizations did is they brought me in to work with them to say okay folks it's going to get stressful. You're going to be tired. You're going to get grumpy with each other. There will potentially be some conflict. How are we going to communicate and behave through this period? What are our baseline ground rules for communication and behaviour? And I don't want a shopping list. I want a top three to six. And they actually came up with five. Now, having this conversation 
as soon as you know you're going into a hard time and not just you as a leader saying this is how I want you behaving, actually involving your people, really getting specific. What does it look like in practice? What does it look like when we're disagreeing in a meeting? What does it look like when I think you've done something wrong? When you get that shared expectation for communication and behaviour, that then gives you an incredible lever through the hard times, if someone is not behaving in line with that, to hold them accountable. And it won't be a surprise because they know what is expected too. Absolutely. You can't hold hold someone accountable for poor behaviour if you haven't made it clear what good behaviour looks like. So I think this is how we avoid micromanaging because if you haven't set the expectation, you might be coming in over people's shoulder all the time going, hang on, no, that's not right, that's not right. Success is in the setup. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on conflict there. That was one of the key things that I picked Mm. up on. It's obviously the result of stress and challenge and people Mm. react, like you say, with all sorts of things happening. But are there some ways that we can navigate it? I love the idea of that, you know, coming up with the ways we're going to deal with this ahead of it happening just so that people are really in that zone before it kind of, you know, the rubber hits the road. But how do we minimise conflict when sometimes it's inevitable? I suppose it's that thing of I don't think all conflict is bad if it leads to a better outcome. So is there a way in which we can get there quicker, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And just to reiterate your point, absolutely. Not all conflict is bad at all. It's are we able to disagree with respect? Yeah. Uh, that's the important thing. You know, organisations who say to me, Leah, I just want harmony. I just want everyone to get along. I say, no, you don't. That's, that's utopia, dangerous. but not really. Exactly. And well, then you get group thinking and all you the get, other stuff. Yeah. yeah that's absolutely. right. You get group thinking and all the issues go under the table because everyone thinks, oh, but we've got to smile and nod at each other and get along. That's what we're all about here. So I won't raise that issue that actually is a really big issue for our organisation because, no, that's not what we do here. So harmony can be really dangerous. Absolutely, you want people to respect each other, but to, you know, borrow a a phrase from the wonderful Rachel Robertson, respect Trump's harmony. So let's just put that out there. But in terms of a strategy for minimising conflict or helping de-escalate it quickly when it happens, empathy. Empathy, empathy, empathy is the secret source. As Brene Brown says, the number one trust-building tool we have because it allows people to feel seen and heard and that's what we all want. So what that might look like in practice, uh, and this this is a strategy I use in one-on-one difficult conversations but also when I'm facilitating uh, perhaps a community meeting where I've got a really angry group of people. If I walk out to facilitate and everyone's angry, it's really palpable in the room, the very first thing I lead with is empathy. So what that might look like is me saying something like, okay, folks, so we're here tonight to talk about this project, but before we get underway, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of feeling in the room tonight and some of you are actually pretty angry and that's okay. However, for us to be able to have this conversation, what I ask of you is, and then I set a couple of ground rules, like maybe we treat each other with respect, pop your hand up if you've got a question, you know, I'm here to answer your questions so we don't need to yell. Or, And here's what you notice, when you lead with empathy and acknowledge the emotion and the feeling, 
you see people de-escalate straight away. However, in this sort of situation, I have also seen leaders look out, they see everyone's angry and upset and they armour up. And they walk out and they ignore the feelings because they're probably a bit scared of that and they just launch into their project, stick to the facts, and guess what happens? Magic. Everyone gets, <laughs> everyone gets really, really angry. Yeah. And people start interjecting and yelling out, but what about this? And I'm not happy with it. And because you haven't acknowledged the emotion, they feel like they have to show you. So they get louder and more aggressive. And this happens in one-on-one conversations as well. The person will get louder and more aggressive. So the empathy piece, which is just acknowledging the emotion that you're seeing is key. And then there's a great, it's such a basic tool, but it's so effective. Anyone can feel any emotion. There are no bad emotions. Emotions are just data. But how often when there's conflict or someone's angry, do we lead with something like, don't get angry at me, which of course is a red rag to a bull because- I was going to say, the thing that you're calling out is the thing (laughs) that's actually going to happen. Exactly, because you're telling them what they can and can't feel. So a little strategy I love to use is what's okay, what's not okay. So this is separating the emotion from the behavior. Again, this draws on Brene Brown's work. And you might say something like, Amber, I it's okay to be frustrated and angry at me right now. What's not okay, though, is to slam the table, roll your eyes and walk out of the meeting. So what I've done there is separate the emotion from the behaviour. And if if you really had done those behaviours, then I'm addressing them, not the emotion. So you might still come back at me and say, oh, but I'm so angry, Leah, and da, da, da. And I can then, again, reiterate and empathise and say, yep, and it's okay to be angry. I appreciate this is a really challenging time. However, for us to have this conversation, here's what I need from you. So we might still disagree. We might still have a robust conversation, but it takes it from that heightened conflict down into maybe a disagreement and out of that really heightened space. Absolutely. That's a really great way to kind of walk us through the the process. Is there a trajectory, I guess, you know, with grief, we know there are stages, for example, acceptance is, for example, the key to us having that path Mm. forward if we're grieving a loss of a job or a human or a pet or whatever it might be. Is that true of all hard times experiences? Are there like maybe an example of what you think that process looks like? So I actually use the uh, stages of grief in my work because the Kubler-Ross stages of grief with her work with uh, David Kessler, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, from the very famous work on grief and grieving and death and dying, yes, has those five stages of grief it was and the last one was acceptance. Uh, Interestingly, on the change curve, they use the same elements. So the very famous Kubler-Ross change curve for how we process change uses those same elements as grief. Interestingly, just as an aside, David Kessler added to the five stages of grief in 2020. He wrote a, he added a sixth stage and wrote a new book called Finding Meaning. Now, David Kessler has been a grief expert for, you know, decades, but in 2020, his son died at a very young age in his early 20s. And here you had a grief expert suddenly say, 
oh my goodness, I missed something here. And he built on from acceptance to finding meaning. And that doesn't mean you say, oh, there's a reason for that hard thing that happened. But what it is, is looking for the learnings so that as a human, you're looking for the learnings and finding purpose going forward. And we see, we've seen um, some famous cases of this here in Australia, like Daniel Morecambe's parents creating the Morecambe Foundation, Rosie Batty doing the incredible work she did. You know, these people after tragedy who have gone to that finding meaning and purpose. And it doesn't mean that what happened was okay in any way. It was so traumatic and awful, but they're finding a way through. I think the key thing when we talk about whether it's dealing with hard times, change or grief, when you, uh, if you are familiar with the different responses, things like anger, depression, denial, uh, you know, those, those big reactions. I think the key is to understand it's not a linear process. We can jump around from one thing to the other and, yes, you're right, ultimately for us to be okay, we really need to find our way to acceptance. Um, Australia's probably most famous mindset coach, Ben Crow, who trained Ash Barty and Dylan Alcott, he, you know, he's quoted as saying many times, we either accept the things we can't change or we suffer. It's as simple yeah. as that. that so sense. I yeah. think I think we do, to be okay, we need to get there, but not everyone gets there, Amber. Some people do get really stuck. Some people get stuck in denial. Some people get stuck in depression some people never make their way through some people stay in anger and the only person it hurts I mean it might hurt some people around you but the primary person it hurts is yourself so I think we all have a responsibility it's certainly what I've tried to do in my book as well to whatever it is for you again there's no one way to get through hard times there's some absolutely some strategies that work and are proven but the key thing is you have to lead yourself through that or get support for from someone to lead you through it because otherwise you will get stuck you'll end up bitter and twisted and the person that will hurt the most is you Absolutely. Obviously, you're a communication expert, and that's very clear in the, in the work that you do and, and how you've communicated these ideas today. But how can communication skills be harnessed better to provide clarity when there is uncertainty? Because obviously, we want to move through these hard times and get to the other side. Yeah. But I think the way in which not just we act, but the way we speak to it has a lot to do with how we feel about situation. Yeah, and I think even in your question, you've picked up a really important distinction. It's one thing to provide clarity when we know what the change is and we're driving it and, you know, it's clear what the steps are. It's really quite easy to provide clarity then. But when there's uncertainty, that's when it can be trickier. However, you absolutely can still provide clarity in uncertain times. And the key to that is transparency. Now, transparency is different to honesty. Honesty is telling the truth when you're asked. Yes, <laughs> so, which can be very hard. I mean, we see that in corporate Australia. The yeah, truth sometimes is the hardest thing to do, yeah, to deal with. Yeah. But transparency is different, right? Honesty is telling the truth when you're asked. Transparency is being easy to see through. So you're telling the truth that you think needs to be known proactively. 
You're not waiting to be asked. And in uncertain times, it's really important to share as much of the truth as you can, recognising you can't always for various reasons. But what I thought might be useful is sharing a really quick and simple four-part framework, four-step framework for providing clarity during uncertainty, really uh, honing in on that word uncertain. So the first step, is to tell them what you know. The second step is to tell them what you're doing about it. So the facts are in that first step. Here's what we know about what's going on. Yep, it's uncertain, but here's what we know. Uh, maybe it's there's government changes coming to our industry. We know that they're coming. We've been told that they're going to be June next year. Number two, what we're doing about it. While we don't know what the changes are yet, we've got representatives from our organisation going to all of the working group meetings with government so that we have the information as quickly as possible. Now, for a lot of leaders during uncertainty, that's where they stop because they think, oh, gee, I don't know the answer to all of those other questions, so I won't say anything. And here's why that's a mistake, because you can bet your bottom dollar the bit that everyone in your organisation is talking about is that unsaid stuff. And because it's unsaid, sometimes people are making assumptions that, oh, geez, Amber knows more, but she's hiding it from us. And people can really lose trust, which is what you don't want during uncertain times. So here's the third step, what we don't know. You actually articulate what you don't know. And then the fourth step is what, uh, how I'll let you know or what I'm my commitment to you for when we know more. So here's what we know about what's going on and here's what we're doing about it. Number two, here's what we don't know. And I know you've got questions about that. I know you want more detail about what the latest lockdown looks like for you or whatever it might be. The reality is, unfortunately, we don't have that information yet. However, my commitment to you is that I'm going to keep asking the questions of government. I'm going to keep asking the questions about these funding changes so that as soon as we have the information, my commitment is to come back and let you know or to keep you updated throughout the process. And what this does is give people a sense of trust in you as their leader. You're not spinning it. It's really important during uncertain times as a leader this is not the time for spin. It's not the time for tarting up your communication or speaking in jargon. This is when plain speak, simple, clear communication is absolutely vital. Absolutely. And I love that. I think that last piece is the thing that's often missing when we're trying mm. to, I guess in some ways that imposter syndrome could come in where you're like, I don't have all the answers, but I'm the CEO and I should know, or I'm the prime minister yeah. and I should know. And that's yeah. probably the piece which comes back to that vulnerability and that ability to, I guess, have some compassion for yourself. Yeah, and I think I also often say to people, you should never go into a conversation thinking, geez, I hope they don't ask me this because you can guarantee that is the question they're going to ask. So 
And I know politicians are very good at this. I know a lot of CEOs are very good at this, but anyone listening can take this advice. If you're going to deliver a message, a great activity to do beforehand is one I call Q&A sparring, where bounce off, get a friend or get a family member or get someone who's in the demographic of your audience and say, I'm planning on saying this, throw your curly questions at me and get them to throw their craziest, curliest questions at you. And when you get those out, yes, you can try to come up with answers if you have answers. But if you don't have answers for some of those questions, develop a response. And again, politicians are great at this. They have their holding statements. You can do this as a leader as well. And it's not about deflecting or being inauthentic and, you know, just having some talking point, but it's about being more comfortable when you get that uh, a tough question of not fumbling and stumbling, of being able to say with confidence, that is a great question. And I wish I had an answer for you right now, but the reality is we don't have that information yet. I'm doing everything I can to get it and my commitment is to come back to you as soon as you can. So that allows you to go into that meeting or that conversation or that press conference perhaps with the confidence that no matter what gets thrown at you, you can take a deep breath and answer because I think what some leaders do in those situations is they fudge it and it's not they're not even trying to, you know, it's not deliberate lying or misleading. They're actually often well-intentioned and they're trying to help, but they're speaking without having all the information and potentially leading people astray. Yes, that's great. Changing tack a little bit, what's the mm. best piece of advice, either life oh. advice, business advice that you've ever received? What was that advice and why has it oh, held goodness. you in such good stead? I, I reckon there's loads of advice, yeah, but sometimes it's just there's that so constant thing where you go, Tough times I think about this. Mm, Yeah. If we focus in on tough times, the best advice, and it wasn't given to me by a living person, it is from a book, but it's one I draw on a lot and I, I quote a lot too, and you've probably had it mentioned on the show before, and it's a quote from Viktor Frankl. Now, have, would your listeners be familiar with that, Amber, or...? Let's just unpack it for Let's people in case they're not. Yeah. yeah. So Viktor Frankl wrote a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. It is still credited today. It was written in the 1940s, still credited today as being the top book that changed the lives of many of the most successful people in the world. And Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist and he was a Jewish man. And he was imprisoned during World War II in a number of concentration camps. His whole family was killed and he was in Auschwitz. He spent three years in Auschwitz. He was tortured repeatedly. He was slave labour. You know, he writes powerfully about his experience in Man's Search for Meaning. But I I just want to, and I I genuinely don't have this quote in front of me, I say it so much that uh, I do know it verbatim, but in that book he says, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, our power to choose our response in any given set of circumstances, to choose our own way. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Amazing. 
you you hear those words, it still gives me goosebumps. Here is a man who has lost everything, been through the most horrific experience that we can imagine. And he said those words. He said, you know what? No matter what is going on in our lives, we get to choose our response. Do not give your power away to other people. You get to choose your response. And this is work that I've drawn on and used in both of my books. It's something I teach in all of my workshops as well. And just briefly, I want to share a quick story of someone who reached out to me last year who was in one of my workshops where I shared that quote uh, pre-COVID. She is a business owner, an Indigenous woman, and she went into hospital early in COVID for a minor medical procedure and unfortunately when they were took the stitches out of her leg a superbug went in and she emailed me in early 2022 to let me know that uh, since I'd last seen her she had actually had one leg amputated and she was going into hospital to have her second leg amputated and you know it sounds like this is made up because it is so extreme and horrific but She reached out to me via email and she said, Leah, I'm preparing for this second surgery and I just want to let you know that those words of Viktor Frankl that we get to choose our response are what I am drawing on through this incredibly, incredibly difficult time. She said, it doesn't make it okay. I am having bad days. You know, this is not Pollyanna stuff. Life is still bloody hard. It is incredibly tough sometimes and, you know, This doesn't make it all sweetness and roses. But she said, whether I like it or not, my second leg is coming off. I can't change the situation or circumstance here. But the one thing within my control is how I choose to respond to it. And this incredible woman is still the CEO of her company. She is still doing amazing work in the world. And it was because she harnessed Viktor Frankl's words of going, this is my lot, this is my situation and it sucks, but my next step and how I respond to this is actually my choice. Absolutely. If we spoke in a year's time, what would be one of the big goals you love to have achieved and why? Yeah, so for me, my focus at the moment in a business sense Uh, In the next year, I have a number of longer-term programs, 12-month programs, linked into my book, Steer Through the Storm, with organisations in the power industry in the region that I'm from here in Gippsland. So in Gippsland, we have uh, most of the coal-fired power stations that currently power the state of Victoria. Obviously, listeners will very much appreciate that we are transitioning away from coal-fired power generation for very good reason. However, I'm really passionate about how we do that. Here in Gippsland, we've seen change led really, really badly in the past with the privatisation of the State Electricity Commission. It was done in that old school way, made maybe uh, business sense, but there was no care for people. And I've seen the fallout of that. I've seen the repercussions. We're still living with you know, a real victim mindset in some people because it was handled so badly then. I don't want to see that happen again. We have to transition, but we can do that while caring for people. So in the next 12 months, I'm going to be upskilling a whole heap of leaders on how to do what we've been speaking about today. How do I lead through really tough times, holding my people accountable for still doing their jobs, but 
with empathy, with compassion, dealing with their feelings so that they feel supported and cared for along the way so that hopefully at the end of the day uh, they can go on to do more great things in their life. So I'm really excited about the opportunity to hopefully have a real impact on not only these leaders but on the people that they lead as well. I love that. And a final takeaway message for us today on the politics of hard times. Yeah, I think here's the, the top tip, aside from, you know, drawing on Viktor Frankl's uh, incredible work, which I highly recommend people look into, is the very first step for leading through change, leading other people or yourself through change or any tough time, is stopping and asking yourself, what do you want to be known for? You're about to go through a hard time. What do you want to be known for through this challenge? Who do you, what sort of person do you want to be? Uh, What do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? And I think the more you can connect in with and get super clear on what that is to you, it's a very personal and individual question, that can then become your touchstone, your North Star, so that when things get tough, when you get wobbly during the politics of tough times, of hard times, you can keep coming back to those core beliefs, whether they're values, beliefs, that touchstone of going, you know what, this is who I am. And even though other people might be behaving badly, I behave like this, staying true to the person you know you are. If you do want to connect further with Leah, of course, there's some details on the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you today on this conversation. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.